0: It seems like, in some ways, that on one hand, Putin's regime is weakened by this coup, but in other ways, it's strengthened by this because he won.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, July 7th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe with the latest reporting on the failed mutiny by the Wagner Group in Russia, which might have actually made Vladimir Putin even stronger. Julia has the latest on Yevgeny Prigozhin's whereabouts, the suspicious case of a missing general, and what Putin is doing right now to consolidate power in the wake of a coup that didn't happen. And later, Teddy Schleifer drops by to gab about the latest developments in the GOP presidential money race, and why Donald Trump is still lapping the Republican field. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind, flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Friday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe to talk about what else? The failed coup attempt, perhaps, in Russia? conducted by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is now in Belarus. But I want to get an update from Julia, not just on his whereabouts, his possible safety, but also a narrative that came out immediately after this effort by the Wagner Group, which was that Putin had suddenly been weakened and he was at his weakest point in years, decades perhaps. And that smelled a little bit like American political punditry to me.
0: Oh, it did it?
1: Uh, Yeah, like Trump's approval ratings are down, he must be toast, or Biden's, you know, can't get reelected, blah, 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 blah. First of all, Julia, welcome.
0: Thank you, thank you for having me.
1: We did talk about this on our podcast about this topic about a week and a half ago. You made some phone calls into Moscow, talked to people around the Kremlin. It's been about a week and a half since this all went down. Is it true? that Putin is substantially
0: weakened? Yes, and also no. So he's weakened because the Siloviki, the strong guys, the strong men, the people in the security services, the Russian National Guard, the FSB, etc., all the people that the Russian state has been investing so much money in at the expense of health care and education and everything else, they kind of stood back and did a whole lot of nothing on June 24th when Wagner and Prigozhin decided they were going to go on their march of fairness toward Moscow. And not just that, but preceding that, Putin had been warned plenty of times. I mean, I don't know if he's a Puck reader, but Puck was writing about it back in December, that this is a clear and present danger. Everybody else was writing about it afterwards. And then Putin was apparently warned about it many times over many months, and he kind of sat back and did nothing, thinking that his authority would be enough to kind of freeze the thing in place. Mm-hmm. It didn't. The marched, and then the siloviki that he had invested so much money all kind of melted away. So it weakened him in the sense that it showed him to be a bit of a paper tiger. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a lot of people in the Moscow elites and the thinking is that if Russian history is any guide, then any regime change will come from the elites. The Russian elites are so happy that Prigozhin is vanquished. They're happy that Putin's back in power, and they don't see anybody else who could potentially stage a coup or challenge Putin's power, because it kind of, A, forced them to look into the void and see, like, okay, they don't, might not love Putin he has racked up quite a few wrongs against them. Over the years, he invaded Ukraine. He brought down a ton of sanctions on them that has completely complicated their lives in a way that they don't like. But if it's between him and Prigozhin, who bashes people's heads in with a sledgehammer, then it's a pretty easy choice. Again, it's very hard to explain to Americans. Americans think that Life has to get better and better and better. And if it doesn't, then you got to get into the street and you got to go to the ballot box and you got to make some change. And Russians are like, oh, they're not slaughtering us in mass? Fucking great. And so the fact that there was this crisis and it looked like it was going to happen and it looked like it was going to be really, really bad. And then Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, it just vaporized, right? All of a sudden, on Saturday evening, Prigozhin said, I'm turning around. Don't worry about it. It's cool. Everybody in Moscow was like, it's cool. Great. Let's just go back to normal. Pretend this never happened. And you pretend this never happened. And that's basically where we are today is everybody saw the fault lines, but they're so happy to get back to normal. And they're so happy that Prigozhin didn't take power and that their heads aren't being sledgehammered in. They are so happy with the status quo all of a sudden.
1: You have a piece about all of this up on Puck this week, and you mentioned something that caught my eye. That Prigozhin was reported to be in Moscow mm-hmm. a few days ago for some meetings. What's his deal now? Uh, because last time we talked, you know, it was almost like a joke on the internet that you know he wouldn't survive the week. You know, you mentioned <laughs> in your piece there's bets going whether he'll make it to his next birthday next year. The fact that he's allowed into Moscow for some meetings suggests that maybe he's not as vulnerable as I thought he was flippantly a few days ago.
0: It's very strange. Again, this is. Unconfirmed reporting, but we've also seen reporting that on July 2nd, so that was, I think, Monday or Sunday, Prigozhin's driver, who was granted the power of attorney by Prigozhin, drove up to a government building and took back 10 billion rubles in cash. That's $111 million in cash. Like, what kind of fucking vehicle do you need? (laughs) Where do you even keep that? Well, okay, but so that wasn't it. So then on top of that, it was a few hundred thousand dollars in cash, in dollars, and then a few bars of gold bullion. So this, the state had confiscated this in the search of Wagner's St. Petersburg headquarters on June 24th while Gregorin's guys were marching toward Moscow. And then all of a sudden it's forgiven and he's getting all this money back in his gold pool. And maybe he's not in Belarus after all. Maybe he's in Moscow because remember his plane flew from St. Petersburg to Belarus and then flew right back. And now he's maybe spotted in Moscow. But weirdly, the general that he had been backing, Sergei Soravikin, a.k.a. General Armageddon, a.k.a. Bashar al-Assad's favorite general, has not been seen. And there are reports that he's under house arrest or he's in Lefortovo, which is this horrific prison where actually American journalist, uh, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gershkovich, is being held. Mm-hmm. So really the guy who started the march seems to be out and about and getting his money back. But the guy who in the army who knew about it and either didn't do anything to stop it or may have in some ways encouraged it, he's not free to walk around. And clearly Mm. not free to post voice memos to Telegram the way Prigozhin has been doing. So it almost seems, again, like it's very strange. And I think people who say that they know the answer to this are lying to themselves. There's still a lot we don't know about why Prigozhin started this march to begin with, why he turned around Mm. so abruptly, why he's still alive why he's getting some resources back while all his other companies are being taken away from him. These are big and unanswered questions or why he's still out walking about, apparently, where Sauravikin is not. Mm -hmm. So big unanswered questions.
1: What else, Julia, is Putin doing to both shore up his stability among elites, but also perhaps, you know, among people in the Russian army and soldiers themselves who might be rattled by this revolt.
0: Well, he announced a 10.5% pay increase. When did you get a 10% pay raise just for nothing? And meanwhile, he's Putin has given a pay raise to people who did absolutely fucking nothing to stop Prigozhin from marching to Moscow, right? They completely melted away. And they were like, all right, well, we'll just see how this plays out. Because it's Putin and Putin's guy, and they'll figure this out, and we'll just hang Mm -hmm. back. And it's like, no, 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 you're not being paid to hang back. You've been paid to be the Praetorian Guard, the Varangian Guard, whatever guard you want to call it. You're supposed to protect Putin's throne. And you did nothing, and now you're getting a pay raise, not for your valor and your service, but for your continued loyalty in the future. And between that and between the scare that the elites had with the imagining Prigozhin in charge, Mm -hmm. it seems like in some ways that on one hand, Putin's regime is weakened by this coup, but in other ways, it's strengthened by this because he won. He's still the president. The one guy who had any chance of taking him out choked. We don't know why. We don't know who helped him, who told him to back down, who told him to go to begin with. But he choked, and Putin's still the guy in charge, and he survived a coup. And suddenly everybody's like, yes, of course, of course we believed in Putin. Of course.
1: I'm really amused by that, and it's a smart point because it, it kind of feels like, again, we are not the same as Russia. The United States is a very different political system. But the way you're framing it, it almost sounds like a president coming off a re-election bid who suddenly has political capital. A mandate. And a mandate, and people in Congress have to deal with him. And then he rolls out his new plans. Mm -hmm. So it's it's sometimes worth taking a deep breath when you read some snap punditry out there that things are different. Things are changing. Uh, In fact, things can go a completely different direction in a matter of days. Totally. Julia, thank you so much for uh, calling into the Kremlin because you know what? I can't do that
0: kind of thing. (laughs) I didn't call into the Kremlin, but you're welcome.
1: In and around the Kremlin. And sources close to. Julia, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. When we come back, Teddy Schleifer is here to talk about Donald Trump's big bucks.
2: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Teddy Schleifer for uh, a few donor world updates on the state of the presidential money race. How's it going, Teddy?
3: Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me.
2: So, Teddy, we're, we're starting to get some numbers coming in from the second quarter. The Trump campaign recently said that it raised $35 million for the last quarter, which is something like double what it raised the previous quarter. I was just looking back before this at some previous quarterly filings from Biden at a similar point in the 2020 primary cycle. And it was actually sort of astounding how much bigger those Trump numbers are than what Biden was raising at the time. Obviously, it's not apples to apples by any stretch but um did that number surprise you at all 35 million for Trump uh, last quarter
3: you know that that 35 million dollar figure is not terribly surprising given that we knew how much he raised in the aftermath of both of his indictments that he suffered through in the second quarter but you know he didn't really suffer because these were huge bonanzas for for his campaign and who knows there could be Future indictments. There could be you know developments in either of those cases that uh, serve as opportunities to raise money. So I, I was not terribly surprised by the overall figure, but it is right. It is much more than Biden raised during a similar period. And, you know, he's he, he doesn't really have a, a, a similar bundling operation that he even had in 2020. Like, I think. The the fundraising that Trump will do will be more similar to what it was in 2016, where he was raising small-dollar money off of the debates, off of media exposure, off of interviews. You know, I'm very curious to see how his super PAC, which raises unlimited checks, I'm very curious to see how they do. But Trump's going to have enough money because he has this fundraising base that is, is very untapped. I mean, obviously, these people are nowhere close to the legal maximum, and we're only at the beginning of the cycle. So I predict many more $35 million fundraising quarters to come.
2: Yeah, I remember many months ago that there was speculation over whether some of the Trump fundraising tactics would turn off donors or even like burn through the small donor base. That doesn't appear to have happened, no matter how scummy or sleazy some of their email subject lines and tactics have been. It does also go to show just how much of a divide there is between these small donors and the mega donors this cycle, because the Trump campaign was claiming that the average size of donations in this previous quarter was something like thirty four dollars. Meanwhile, Teddy, you had reported just the other week, we've got Dick Yulhine, major billionaire donor, one of the wealthiest people in Republican politics, supported Trump in the past. He is now throwing a bunch of fundraisers for Ron DeSantis. Mm -hmm. And I wonder to what extent both of those things, the the small donors rallying to Trump's side and the big donors standing by DeSantis are explained by these indictments in particular.
3: Yeah, look, I mean, uh, for folks who are not in Wisconsin or aren't buying... Uh, Uline shipping boxes uh, on the daily. You know, Dick Uline is, I think he was the wealthiest person in Wisconsin, or he has been wealthiest person in Wisconsin. He is a hard right, conservative billionaire. You know, I guess a shipping magnate would be the uh, the turn of the, the shorthand here. But he is, uh, you know, well to the right of lots of Republican donors. He was a huge supporter of the club for growth for years. And he was a big Trump guy in 2016 and 2020. Uh, Originally, he was Scott Walker guy from Wisconsin, but the fact that Uline, uh, as I reported for Puck subscribers a couple weeks ago, the fact that Uline is doing a fundraiser next week in Wisconsin for Ron DeSantis, I, I think is a bit of a, of a bellwether um, or a bit of a tell that even someone who is as far right as as he is and, you know, someone who put real you know money on the board in 2020 to support Trump, even he is backing DeSantis in 2024, or at least is fundraising for DeSantis in 2024, is a tell. His wife, Liz Uline, is sort of unusual in that like they're, you can almost think about them, Ben, as like separate donors. They do their own thing. They have separate advisors. She's more moderate than he is. You know, she's backing DeSantis. That's not as surprising to me. The fact that Dick is, though, is surprising. And you're totally right to put those kind of side by side with the fact that Trump has, you know, a fundraising base that loves the indictments. You know, there are obviously lots of Republican donors who want to move on from 2020 and, you know, want to move on from that era of politics. And the indictments are a reminder that Trump has, shall we say, baggage. And uh, the fact is, 35 million bucks, like Dick Uline could write that in his sleep. So uh, the, the more, the merrier, I suppose. I mean, Trump and DeSantis are both going to be very well funded in different ways. And, and um, you know, money does matter on the margins. But the sense I get when I talk with lots of donors right now is not like a nihilism, but but close. Like a, a, a curiosity, shall we say, about whether anything that anybody is doing on the fundraising side will really matter. And we I know we want to talk about Charles Koch in a little bit. That's kind of one of the big questions for all Republican donors right now is, Whether or not there are ways to move Trump's favorability ratings or Trump's horse race polling with money, with ads, or if that is, you know, standing that is only influenced by things like, you know, what happens before a grand jury in Georgia, and that might matter more than what Paul Singer thinks, right?
2: Yeah, well, let's get into the Koch stuff. There's a major Koch brothers organization now just funded by one Koch brother. But uh, Americans for Prosperity Action last week, they said that they have raised $70 million to take out Trump, to put their money behind whoever is going to be his top Republican rival. A lot of that money apparently came from Charles Koch himself. But I thought it was interesting that the group is not necessarily committing to DeSantis. They have not determined who their Trump killer is going to be yet. It could be DeSantis, but mm-hmm. they you know, they have their own disagreements with him over things like criminal justice reform. But, but more than that, as you were just saying, Teddy, about other donors, there is this sense of hesitation still. A lot of this money is sitting on the sidelines. Nobody wants to get in too early. It was suggested in the New York Times story, at least, that the money could flow to someone like Tim Scott, for instance, if he starts to rise in the polls. But for now, at least, they are not jumping in and taking sides.
3: Yeah, so the return of the Kochs is is a, a story I'm very interested in this cycle. So for people who took a, an eight year nap during the Trump presidency, like the Kochs have not really been active in politics really at all since 2016. When I was kind of going to Coke seminars, when they were inviting reporters in, you know, they were at the height of their powers in the 2010 to 2016 era. I would say they were sort of tracking the the rise of kind of the the free trade. You know, intellectuals like Paul Ryan and and Marco Rubio and uh, maybe someone like Tim Scott or certainly Mitt Romney or Jeb Bush or Scott Walker or any other Republican not named Donald Trump. The rise of Trump in 16 was, you know, a giant middle finger to everything the Kochs believed in. Every issue that the Kochs cared the most about, trade, you know, generally moderate position on immigration, believers in entitlement reform, like, you know, these are are not policies that Donald Trump supported. And they took an eight-year nap. You know, David Koch, who was kind of the more political of the two of them. David Koch died, I I forget which year, but sometime during the Trump presidency. Their son, Chase Koch, who runs kind of their philanthropic organizations and is an executive at Koch Industries. Chase does not really want to be involved in politics, but the moment maybe is, is, is choosing them. And after this long sabbatical from Republican politics, they are getting back in and they're telling people that they're going to be spending money to defeat Trump. Unclear what exactly that's going to look like, right? It could just look like we are negative on Trump and, you know, running anti-Trump ads and letting the chips fall where they may. And, you know, that Chase Koch or Charles Koch aren't going to make political contributions to a Santa super PAC, but they could just run, you know, straight negative on Trump and hope that, you know, that trickles down. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they whip hard for someone that seems to be the likeliest Trump killer. And then maybe, they may, maybe they don't make that call until October, November, December. There is an element here of of kissing the ring that I think it'll be interesting to see how these candidates do it. I mean, if, if people remember in 2016 when the Cokes were at the height of their power, I remember, you know, candidates would go out to Indian Wells or Colorado Springs, wherever they'd be having their kind of confabs, some some of which, you know, reporters got to go to. And these people were obsessed with getting Charles Koch to, like, say that you are you know a, a chosen candidate because they thought it could unlock— millions of dollars and these are very decentralized organizations the coke network you know i know it's called the coke network but there's a couple hundred people in a room and it's not as if like they have you know uh, a chain of command where you know you are conscripted to, to donate 10 million dollars to Ron santa so there's going to be lots of people making lots of decisions but i definitely am curious whether or not this kind of old guard free market republican group like still has the juice, right? Because this is a group of kind of has-beens, and if, if they don't actually have any juice, then who cares what Charles Koch thinks, right? I mean, uh, if, if he's not going to be really making a difference with his money or with his ads, then they're just, you know, schmucks like me and you.
2: Yeah, that's a great point, Teddy. I mean, obviously, these days in particular, money is sort of not what it used to be. It can go a long way in these campaigns, but it depends on how you deploy it, depends on how you use it strategically, whether it's for digital ads or certain platforms, if it's on TV, the specific messaging that you're picking. And sometimes it doesn't matter. You know, you can be Hillary Clinton and have all the money in the world and you can get steamrolled if you are, for instance, an unpopular candidate or if you're up against a candidate who's using Facebook in, in, in smarter or more innovative ways. We've seen all of that happen again. But to your earlier point, there, there definitely is this sense of deja vu again with this race that you do see a lot of these sure. donor groups still sitting on the sidelines. And, and I don't want to be alarmist about the timing. You know, it's still early in the cycle. There's still time for them to make these decisions, but they're going to have to make these decisions eventually, and it might be before it's obvious who the anti-Trump frontrunner is because the, the longer they wait, the worse the odds are eventually going to get. The more the non-Trump candidates are going to uh, snipe each other and not coalesce around one person who
3: can take this guy on, and there's really only so much window available. The The watchword du jour is consolidation and when it happens, when it needs to happen, and and there's kind of two schools of thought from kind of operatives and donor advisors and fundraisers I talk to one is, is the obvious point, right? Which is too many candidates, 2016 deja vu. We saw what happened last time. Trump's impenetrable. We need to consolidate to now. And, and every day we don't consolidate is another day that Trump because Trump's a Republican nominee. I would say that's the, the dominant point of view. The counterintuitive point of view is a sentiment that the sky is falling narrative is maybe a little bit overcooked and that there is differences between 2024 and 2016, that there aren't as many Republican candidates who are well-funded this time. Like in 2016, there were lots of kind of candidates who had, you know, a couple of billionaires in their pocket who were able to you know prevent the consolidation because they had money. What if that's not true this time? You know, I guess this this point of view also believes that consolidation will happen eventually, Maybe even in 2023, like that there could be lots of people who drop out before Iowa and that that was not true in 2016. Another key point to this, and this is indisputably true, how much it matters is subject to debate, is that no one is underestimating Donald Trump this time, right? There, there, there is no belief that, you know. Oh, Ben, I'm sure you remember from 2015, you know, that this is the day that, you know, Trump will no longer be the nominee. Like we we saw that news cycle a thousand times. Like, I don't think there's anybody here who is underestimating, you know, Trump's 50, 60 percent in public opinion polls right now. So you have months to chip away at that in a way where, you know, you can do it with a strategy rather than just kind of blind, blind optimism. So there are some Republicans who do believe that there will be consolidation with enough time. And that it's maybe not as deja vu as people think. And I think we're going to get a good window into that, Ben, this month when we start seeing campaign finance reports, not just from the second quarter for all the candidates, but we're going to get windows into the first half of 2023 Super PAC filings, which are going to come, I believe, at the end of the month. So we'll see things like who is donating to the DeSantis Super PAC that we've discussed here on the podcast before. Christy, Will Larry Ellison put in you know, $50 gajillion or $500 gajillion. <laughs> Things like that matter. Right. And we'll, we'll have a good answer to this question, I think, by the end of the month.
2: Right. At this point, we've got the, the Trump numbers early, which is sort of the, the peg for this conversation. More of these filings are going to be coming out soon. We'll definitely have you back on to talk through all of it. It'll be really fascinating to see how these campaign finance totals are actually tallying up. Teddy, thanks as always for stopping by. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday. This has been a presentation of Odyssey.